Hi everybody, welcome to the step one, two and three workshop. And today is Saturday the 19th of June, 2021. And I am absolutely delighted to introduce our two speakers, Janet B from New Jersey and Melissa C from New York. And I am now gonna hand it over to them. Take it away girls. Hi, good morning. I'm Janet B from New Jersey. I've recovered from compulsive eating and bulimia. And just um, so you know what our plan is, I'm going to talk about powerlessness. Melissa is going to talk about unmanageability. I'm going to talk about step two, pretty much straight out of we agnostics. And then Melissa is going to talk about step three. And then there's, um, we'll have, we'll, we will happily answer any questions that we can. So as I said, I'm Janet. I've recovered from compulsive eating and bulimia. And just to give you a quick, very quick summary of my history before I talk about powerlessness. Um, I first came into OA when I was in high school and I was already a full-blown compulsive eater. I stole food, I stole money for food. And at my worst, I was binging and purging six times a day. Um, it was so bad that I had to have my esophagus surgically retighten because of the abuse that I heaped on it. I know a lot of people show pictures. If I was going to show a before picture, I would have to find a picture of a zombie because even though I looked fairly normal, I was about at my worst, about like 24 pounds heavier than I am now. Um, and that was even with throwing up six times a day. I felt like I was a walking dead person. I could be in a room with all of you and feel like I was the only person on the planet. Um, I felt lonely. I was a compulsive liar and I made up crazy, insane stories, um, such as I would cut myself with a razor, pretend I was mugged or raped, go to a hospital for a fake rape exam, um, even take the penicillin that the very kind nurse gave me so I wouldn't get venereal disease from my fake rapist. Um, I continued acting this way in OA and I continued binging and purging for my first six or seven years in OA until I was introduced to the 12 steps and to the God who I believe created the world in six days, took a day off to rest, and instead of watching Netflix is spending the rest of eternity launching search and rescue missions for us addicts. And once I surrendered my life to God and committed to work this 12-step program, um, it was like a hand reached into my soul and yanked out the obsession. And by the grace of God and the direction of these steps, um, I've been in recovery now almost 38 years. And I'm excited to talk about powerless now and finding God shortly afterwards. Um, because I believe this God is still alive and well, and the age of miracles is still with us. So powerlessness. Let me talk about some of the things I tried and why I thought I binged and why I was wrong. Um, when I went to my first OA meeting, I was relieved to know I wasn't the only one who ate this way. Um, it was as if I was a diabetic and didn't know other diabetics existed. And then found Diabetics Anonymous. The problem though is great. I go to Diabetics Anonymous and I feel better, but the solution isn't fellowship. Fellowship is great as a support, 
the solution for diabetic is insulin. So it was like for six years, I was going to Diabetics Anonymous and not injecting insulin. I would talk about it a little bit. People said, oh yeah, here's this book that tells you how to inject insulin. But I just like kept coming back and not getting better. Um, and truthfully, there weren't many people who were talking about what was in the manual. So I tried to figure out why, in spite of going to meetings and having sponsors and doing assignments, like writing things like, I have diabetes and it makes my life unmanageable, um, I wasn't getting better. I had a strong desire to get better. In my first six or seven years, I probably had about 50 sponsors. And people said, oh, you just don't want to get better. And that wasn't true. I really did want to get better. Didn't matter. I thought maybe it was circumstances. I blamed it on my lousy upbringing, which in hindsight wasn't really lousy. And I thought I binged because I was miserable. Um, but I remember I was in college and that I was in high school and this college boy invited me to a Beach Boys concert, which when you're 17, like that is heaven wrapped up in a, with a big red bow. And I went and I binged and I said, I must be binging to sabotage my happiness. Well, okay, so I was binging because I was miserable and then binging because I was happy. That was all wrong. Circumstances are never the cause of relapse. And I think a lot of us have been to meetings where people have said, or if we're gonna be honest, we've said ourselves, I broke my abstinence because fill in the blank. And the fill in the blank always had to do with something outside myself. My lousy boss, my rotten husband, my annoying kids. There was always a reason that had to do with circumstance. I remember one saying I binged because the weather wasn't sunny on a day when I wanted to be outside. But I've since learned that if we're eating compulsively, it's always 100% of the time because there's something wrong with our spiritual condition. It never depends on circumstance. Remember Jim in chapter three, like the used car salesman, he got his family back and all that stuff. He had his family, he had a job and all was going well externally. But the book says, because he failed to enlarge his spiritual life, he got drunk. And then we can contrast this with Bill Wilson in the chapter of Vision for You. The text on page 154 of our big book says, he was bitterly discouraged in a strange place, discredited and almost broke. That sounds pretty bad. But instead of getting drunk, he started Alcoholics Anonymous because, and this is important, because he had surrendered his life to God and therefore he was protected. See, we don't not binge because we're good or because we work hard. The only way we're able to not binge is because we're protected by God, never has to do with circumstance. Okay, so if it's not circumstance, was my problem lack of knowledge? Did I need to know better what foods were triggering me or what some people call their alcoholic foods? I had food plan after food plan that eliminated binge foods. And I must have done the assignment to write a history of my compulsive eating 
10, 20 times. And guess what? I still couldn't stop because my problem wasn't lack of knowledge. Imagine this. So let's go to another medical example. Someone going to their oncologist, being shown an x-ray or a CAT scan and being told, see that spot there? That proves you have cancer. Now that you have the knowledge that you're a real cancer patient, now make your cancer cells stop multiplying. Well, of course, a doctor would never say that. And yet, how many times was I told that if I really knew I was a compulsive eater, if I really knew what my trigger foods were, I'd be able to stop. Okay, so if it wasn't circumstance and it wasn't lack of knowledge, maybe I didn't want it badly enough. But as I said before, um, people would say, well, if she really wanted to, she'd stop. If I had a dollar for every time someone said that about me, I would be able to quit my job because I would be a rich woman. I had the desire to stop, but what I didn't have was the power. And that's what our book tells us. On page 24, and this to me is really important, it says that at a certain point in the drinking of every alcoholic, or for us, compulsive eater, he passes into a state where the most powerful desire to stop drinking or overeating is of absolutely no avail. So there I was six and a half years in, still binging with my binges growing more and more frequent and more and more severe. I had the knowledge, I had the desire, but I didn't have the power. Okay, what does it mean to have no power? Obviously, there wasn't a furry little creature that kept shoving my hand into a bag of this or a carton of that. It was me who did it. So what does it mean to be powerless? This is so, so important to understand that the writers of the big book put the paragraph that explains it in italics. On page 24, it says, we are unable at certain times to bring into our consciousness with sufficient force the memory and humiliation, the memory of the suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month ago. We are without defense against the first drink. Well, that is really weird. It talks about consciousness, memory, no defense. What does that all mean? but it's important to understand it. So let's break it down. Normally, my defense against doing something dangerous is my memory. Let's say I'm about to touch a hot stove. Well, in my memory are stored all these data points telling me that touching a hot stove is dangerous. So if I'm about to touch a hot stove, my memory will send a little thought running across the bridge that connects to my consciousness, my conscious mind where I make decisions, sends a thought saying, stop, danger, hot stoves will burn you, don't do it. And then I don't touch the stove. Or another example, personal to me, I have a terrible cat allergy. So stored in my memory are a bunch of data points of cat-induced asthma attacks. So if I'm tempted to go into a pet store or visit a friend who has a cat, my memory 
takes the data, generates a little thought to run across the bridge to my consciousness and says, stop, danger. Cats will give you asthma attacks. So again, my memory protects me. So now let's talk about food. Um, best example I can think of in college, I used to binge on these certain kinds of cookies. It came in a box of 20 and I would always say, I'm gonna have just one or two, but I'd end up eating the whole box of 20 and sometimes running out for a second box. So in my memory were all these data points of how I'd promised myself I'd eat just one cookie, but I'd end up eating the whole box. So there I go again, my conscious mind telling me, let's go out and buy a box of cookies and just have one or two. And then my memory grabs the data, generates a little thought to run across the bridge to my consciousness to say, stop, danger. You won't be able to stop at one. You'll eat the whole box. You'll hate yourself. You'll gain more weight. You'll make yourself throw up. You'll be miserable. Don't do it. Except when it came to food, the bridge was broken and the thought couldn't get across. My memory failed to hold me in check. And I had no defense against the first compulsive bite. I couldn't keep the memory green. I couldn't just tell myself to stay away from certain foods. When it came to food, the bridge between my memory and my conscious mind, my will, where I made my decisions was broken. And once broken, it could never be repaired. How did it get broken? You know, in the big book, it says opinions vary considerably as to why we have this. Basically, they're saying we don't know and it doesn't matter. Generally, we go to therapy to figure out why. And it's generally so we can figure out who to blame, usually our parents. It doesn't work. It doesn't matter how it got broken. If someone has cancer, they don't spend thousands of dollars to go to therapy to figure out, huh, did I get too many x-rays when I was a kid? Or was it this? They just take the treatment. So all I knew was my bridge was broken. And once it's broken, the question isn't, how can it be repaired? Because it can never, ever be repaired. We've got to build another bridge, and that's a bridge to God so he can protect us. But that's a story for step two. Um, at this point, it's just realizing I had a broken bridge and I was hopeless. Just like Bill Wilson, when he realized he was hopeless, on page eight in our book, he says, no words can tell of the loneliness and despair I found in that bitter morass of self-pity. Quicksand stretched around me in all directions. I had met my match. I had been overwhelmed. Alcohol was my master. For me, food was my master and I had a broken bridge. I was powerless. And lest you think that's bad enough, that's only half of step one. I'm gonna turn it over to Melissa, who's gonna talk about the second half of step one. Great, thank you. Thanks so much, Janet. So before I jump in and discuss um, unmanageability, I'm gonna give you a little background on me. Um, and I am gonna share my pictures um, because my disease um, had a very visible, visual 
demonstration of what it meant. Um, so my name is Melissa C. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. I live in New York and um, at my top weight, I was um, over 300 pounds. I was living in um, a state of horrendous pain of morbid obesity. And, um, you know, I, I generally like to show these photos because <clears throat> I know it would have gotten my attention. I was always looking for a, a, a cure, a, a magical, miraculous cure. I loved looking at the covers of magazines, the before and after photos. And, um, you know, part of my story is I chased every expensive, ridiculous, extreme measure, like everything, I was all in. If it cost more money and it sounded crazy, then I thought it has to work, my God, it has to work. Um, and so this is what it looks like, you know, um, this was 20 years ago, because my daughter's 20 now. And I thought I was gonna lose that pregnancy weight, right? And clearly she's older here in the pink and I, and I got bigger. And that was me back and forth, you know, repeatedly, I would lose a little weight only to regain it. Lose a little weight down here in the sunglasses only to regain it. Um, it continued on. The picture of me in the leopard sweater um, is a very painful photo to look at because um, I wanted, I have two children and in between both of them, I had a lot of loss. And I wanted this little boy more than anything in the world. Um, and I could barely hold him because the size of my body, the bulk was so large and it broke my heart. It just about broke my heart. I would cry. He was so active and I would cry because I couldn't keep up with him. I just wanted him to stop, just stop for a minute. Um, you know, here, there's a picture of me in the gray dress. Um, I like to show this as well, because in that photo, although my body didn't catch up yet, I mean, clearly I had lost weight, right? I was recovered in that photo. And what was amazing about that in complete contrast to the one down below in the green, the one down below in the green, I'm with my sisters at a family function. I had to drink to get through those events and I had to eat. And I have a wonderfully loving family, but I walked around with a lot of resentment and a lot of anger. And I always felt separate and different and alone. I could be surrounded in a room full of people that loved me and I wasn't available to feel it. And so this picture, I felt like a monster next to my sisters. I just felt awful. Um, and yet above here I am with my mom at this catered affair that I was paying for um, there was like, you know, food, as much food as you could dream. There was a room for dessert at the end of the party, an entire room. And I was paying for this party. It was a, you know, was in celebration of my daughter and I was abstinent and I was happy in my release. I actually enjoyed the people that were there, which was just mind blowing for me to be not interested in the food and interested in the people. And then Here's, you know, this is what it looks like to be recovered. Um, this is me now, you know, a little bit older. <laughs> um, my hair is changing colors often. Um, but what I love about this photo is every one of those dresses fits me and I know it. I can just go in my closet, pull it out and, and 
um, and I don't have to worry about it anymore. And you know why I like to show those pictures um, is because if you're living in a state of morbid obesity or struggling with the disease, I want you to know this is possible. It's it's more than possible. It's it's a guarantee. If you do what the book says, you too can experience this recovery, right? I'm not unique. I'm not unique at all. Okay, so let's jump into powerless and unmanageability. And I'm just gonna start off with um, ending, <clears throat> like I know Janet talked about powerless and there's a lot of overlap. There's a lot of overlap because part of my unmanageability was my constant exerting what I thought was power. So I kept finding out in my unmanageability just how powerless I was. They're very related. So what is powerlessness anyway? It's one, devoid of strength or resources, and two, lacking the authority or capacity to act, right? So I simply do not have the strength or resources needed to control my food addiction. And I lack the authority to act in ways which are in agreement with my own knowledge, right? So I can know something and I still can't act in agreement with something that I know is true. That's, that's a major problem, right? So powerless, you know, um, is, is one part of the problem, but like, here's the thing, right? I'm gonna talk about unmanageability. And here's a definition for manage, right? Um, to be in charge, to be able to supervise, administer and regulate, handle, five, maintain control, six, succeed in surviving or attaining one's aims, and seven, to cope. Those are the definitions, what it means to manage something, right? So now when we talk about unmanageability, people often go right to the bedevilments. That's what I find. People like, they go, and that's true. Those, you know, on, their, on page 52 in We Agnostics, which I know Janet's going to touch on as well, that we were having trouble with personal relationships. We couldn't control our emotional natures. We were prey to misery and depression. We couldn't make a living. We had a feeling of uselessness. We were full of fear. We were unhappy. We couldn't seem to be of real help to other people. Okay, for me, check, 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 check. And I wore it. I visibly wore, you know, in, in, in extra body fat, right? I wore my unmanageability on my back. Um, you know, to me, the bedevilments, those are the consequences of unmanageability. They are the evidence of an unmanaged life. So, you know, I say there's also a world of misunderstanding surrounding this word, because people often point out the things in their life that are manageable, right? And there's confusion and almost like this very defensive posture pointing out what's still working. So I'd be like, I'm not unmanageable. You know, I've got a job. I pay my mortgage, right? My kids, my kids are taken care of. I'm not unmanageable. Um, 
you know, and there, and I also think sometimes there's a danger and I have to be careful when I show my pictures and I tell some of the real horrific aspects of my story because if I only focus on the consequences, you know, um, and the craziness, how heavy I got, my crazy diets, the danger is that if I'm speaking to someone who hasn't done those things yet, <laughs> that's the key word, right? Yet. Um, you might be thinking, um, you yeah, know, I don't really have this thing, right? Or here's the other problem. If your horror story like makes mine look like a, a day in the park, right? If yours is so much worse than mine, then you're thinking, oh yeah, no, well, yeah, it won't work for me. I'm not quite as bad, right? I'm much worse than she is. So even though, I'll tell you, even though I was always able to hold a job, pay my bills, I was still suffering from a state of unmanageability. And I say, if you're waiting until all aspects of your life, like circle the drain, right? Circle the toilet, the drain, um, you know, you can wait. And in my experience, it will. How's that? It will. Everything that you thought, everything I thought I wouldn't do, I came to do, right? It only gets worse, never better. Um, you know, but, but maybe it will help if we focus on manageability solely on the fact that I cannot manage, I could not manage the most basic function of all, right? I cannot manage the amount of food I eat. That is pretty basic, people. Um, and yes, okay, I have an allergy, I get that. But people who have allergies to food, they're not unmanageable, right? People um, can have a shellfish allergy, they can have a strawberry allergy. Janet was explaining a cat allergy. That's a very easily manageable problem. You don't go near it. You don't need 12 steps. And you don't even have a, to have a relationship with God. You just don't go near it, right? Um, but if you're unmanageable, it means that you can't help yourself. You just can't help yourself. And if you're manageable, it means that you can rely on certain tools, systems, practices, and methods to keep things running smooth. And these methods consistently keep the business that you're trying to manage or structure running pretty well. And, you know, I, I always share with people, I'm a teacher, right? And in my profession, classroom management is like key. That's like, that's, that's good teachers know how to manage their class, right? And, um, and, and if I was working with a student teacher, like I often mentor young teachers new in their career, um, and I was assisting them in becoming an effective teacher, I would look at how her students were doing, right? And this would be the evidence of her management. I would say, oh, okay, they're doing well. She, And if there were problems, I might make some suggestions. I might say like, let's tweak your methods with this and let's try some new things. And as long as she was consistent, right? As long as she was really consistent, we could find the right one that would work for her class. And that's what would happen for me. And I taught for a number of years. So every year you get new kids, you gotta like tweak a little things, but eventually you find the system that's gonna work for these kids. Um, and 
you know, why? Because the students are manageable, they're manageable. But in my experience has shown me that when dealing with my disease of compulsive eating, I can't rely on any methods, none of them. They're simply not consistently effective. And I've actually put together a list of 26 methods that I've used that are found in the big book to manage this problem. And by the way, like none of them are diets. Like if you add diets, there's a whole other, you know, a whole other list. Um, in the doctor's opinion, it says that we're the type with whom other methods had failed completely. So our big book does an excellent job highlighting this. And really this part of the talk is gonna be about delving into the text to create a list of all the methods that I cannot use to manage my disease. What is the objective of creating this list? I'm gonna get you ready for step two for Janet, right? Because I wanna help you snuff out the thought that you can still do this job alone. That's my purpose. Um, it's the second part of step one that is necessary to drive us out of the delusion that we can solve our own problems. So this part of the talk isn't like, um, it's, not, it's not cheery, <laughs> I have to say, it gets pretty grim, you know, because, um, and everybody's like leaning in, ooh, I wanna hear grim. <laughs> yeah, we wanna hear grim. Um, and Bill's story on page five through six, it says, shortly afterward, I came home drunk. I'm gonna tell you about a couple of the methods now. There had been no fight. Where had been my high resolve? I simply didn't know it hadn't even come to mind. Someone had pushed a drink my way and I had taken it. Was I crazy? I began to wonder for such an appalling lack of perspective seemed near being just that. Renewing my resolve, I tried again. Some time passed and confidence began to be replaced by cocksuredness. I could laugh at the gin mills. Now I had what it takes. One day I walked to a cafe to telephone and in no time I was beating on the bar, asking myself how it happened. As the whiskey rose into my head, I told myself I would manage better next time, but I might as well get good and drunk one. Okay, so as I go through this, here's the list, right? And you might wanna, if you're a note taker and a list lover, you could jot a few down, right? So. Okay, in that short paragraph, I've got four things I found out I can't use. One, fighting. Two, resolve. Three, my mind. And four, perspective. So fighting this disease has looked like getting really serious about the severity of my problem gathering up all my arsenal of diet strategies and coming at it from the angle that I can beat this problem. But the fight always results in me losing. I can't sustain the energy required to fight for long. Resolve, right? So here's another thing too, resolve. And even that word tells me that I'm going to have to re-solve this, right? I'm gonna to have to solve this yet again. Um, meaning I'm going to have to do it again. Well, if it's a problem that I've solved, why do I need to do it again? <laughs> right? Because it's never worked for the long haul. The problem I have with making up my mind. So here's the next one, three, making up my mind. I can't make up my mind because um, my mind doesn't stay consistently made up. 
right? In fact, it often feels like I just changed my mind, you know, and I would give myself, here's what would happen for me. I would give myself a start date. I'd be like, oh, I'm starting. And then the date approached and I would just make up my mind to change the date again, right? Or, you know, and it would be after the weekend, after my birthday, the holidays, um, you know, okay, now perspective, right? Here's another one. Number four is perspective. That's the way of looking at this. I couldn't fairly assess the seriousness of this problem in the moments when I need to understand just how critical the nature of this problem is, right? I could always seem to understand the seriousness of my problem after the fact, right? When I was like suffering in the binge, when I was laying in bed, having like horrible stomach pains, then I could understand it was serious. You know, after I succumb to the desire, but in the midst of the situation, I can't appreciate the seriousness of it. Okay, now in Bill's story on page eight, we're gonna find out something else we can't use. Another strategy that is not able to be managed, right? Fear, <laughs> trembling. On page eight, it says trembling. I stepped from the hospital a broken man. Fear sobered me for a bit. Then came the insidious insanity of that first drink. So fear, I have been terrified. When I received, you know, I received the diagnosis um, that my blood pressure was dangerously high. My doctor told me I was in my early 40s, and my doctor told me, um, "You're not going to make it out of your 40s, right?" And I went to the doctor, the dentist, and the dentist warned me that the enamel on my teeth was wearing down, that I was having serious teeth problems from all the gum chewing. I was like, I was like seriously addicted to gum. Fear didn't sober me up then, right? I wasn't like, it didn't work. Um, in fact, the more fearful I was, the more I needed to eat. When the doctor told me that I wasn't gonna make it out of my forties, on the way home, I stopped at a drive-through. That's what fear does to me. Um, <clears throat> so now into the, into the chapter, there's a solution on page 22 to 23. We know that while the alcoholic keeps away from drink as he may do for months or years, he reacts much like other men. We're equally positive that once he takes any alcohol, whatever into his system, something happens both in the bodily and mental sense, which makes it virtually impossible for him to stop. The experience of any alcoholic will abundantly confirm this. These observations would be academic and pointless if our friend never took the first drink, thereby setting the terrible cycle in motion. Therefore, the main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than in his body. And if you ask him why he started on this last bender, the chances are he will offer you any one of a hundred alibis. Sometimes these excuses have certain plausibility, but none of them really make sense in light of the havoc an alcoholic's drinking bout creates. They sound like the philosophy of the man who, having a headache, beats himself on the head with a hammer so he can't feel the ache. If you draw this fallacious reasoning to the attention of any alcoholic, he will laugh it off 
become irritated and refuse to talk. Once in a while, he may tell the truth. And the truth, strange to say, is usually he has no more idea why he took that first drink than you have. Some drinkers have excuses with which they are satisfied part of the time, but in their hearts, they really do not know why they do it. Once this malady has a real hold, they're a baffled lot. There's the obsession that somehow, someday, they will beat the game, but they often suspect they're down for the count. Okay, so now I'm gonna go back to the list. And mind was there, but we've already said that, so I'm not gonna add that again. Number six, reasoning. Seven, talking. Can't talk about this problem and think it's gonna be solved, right? And eight, truth, right? So my own experience was that any reason, anytime I used reason, for picking up the food, right? And for me, it was like, it was, sounded like sometimes really good reasons, right? My dad died. My dad died, guys, I need to eat, right? To being a birthday celebration. There was no real reason that could explain why I would knowingly cause myself to return to the hell of the food, right? You couldn't talk me through this problem not a therapist, not a friend, or a lecture. None of that worked, right? And certainly, you know, when it talks about truth, I couldn't even differentiate the true from the false. My alcoholic life seemed the only normal one. So anything that we would have like tried to discuss that the truth is, the truth is you're 300 pounds, right? The truth is this has too many calories. None of it worked. Okay, now, and there's a solution, page 24. The fact is that most alcoholics, for reasons yet obscure, have lost the power of choice in drink. Our so-called willpower becomes practically non-existent. We are unable at certain times to bring into our consciousness with sufficient force the memory of the suffering and humiliation of even a week ago. We're without defense against the first drink. So nine, choice, right? Choice is not a good management strategy. 10, willpower. 11, memory. And Janet spent a lot of time talking about why memory doesn't work. So I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna jump in on that. Um, 12, suffering, right? Suffering doesn't work as a management strategy. How many of us here have suffered? And that didn't work, right? and 13, humiliation. And I could write a book on humiliation now it doesn't work. Um, okay, so I'm gonna talk about this a little bit, choices. I've never been able to just make better food choices. You know, I remember hearing at a meeting once, a woman saying that she no longer chose to hurt herself with food. I, I was dumbfounded. And because she said, you know, I overate a little bit, but you know what, I'm no longer, um, I'm no longer going to, to choose to hurt myself anymore with food. And what, what struck me was like, wait a second, do you mean to tell me that I've just been choosing to hurt myself by my eating and that all it would take for me was just to stop? I don't know if there's some noise that's coming here that's bothersome, but um, someone put something here. Um, that, that, um, 
that there was uh, something I could do to just stop choosing that, right? Um, then I would never need the steps. Then I would just simply say, I won't, you know, I won't do it um, and I'll choose something different. You know, and for willpower, I have used every bit of willpower I've ever had. And at best it's temporarily effective, but it's completely unreliable. I never know when it's gonna run out. And what I say is that willpower is, it has an expiration date. And the expiration date, you know, when you pull up a carton of milk, it has the expiration date stamped on it. Well, the expiration date for my willpower is written in like invisible ink or magical ink that just changes. All of a sudden I go to call upon my willpower. I just had it and it's gone, right? Can't rely on willpower um, because it's only temporarily effective. And as for memory, Janet, talked all about memory. Um, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna skip the memory part. You know, I have also um, suffered and been humiliated by this disease. And we talked about suffering and humiliation, physical suffering. You know, I, I broke my foot due to being overweight and over-exercising. And, um, and then after getting a cortisone injection, the doctor told me, you gotta take it easy, but I had eaten <laughs> and I had calories that had to be burned. And I knew how much calories I could burn if I exercised and I broke my foot again. That is humiliating and painful to show up back to the doctor. And he says like, what do you mean it didn't work? Like, aren't you wearing the boot? And I had to tell him the truth because he was like, maybe there's something seriously wrong with you. Maybe we need to get like, you know, there's a real problem here, why you're not healing. And I had to tell him, yeah, I took the boot off so I could run on the treadmill, right? Um, you know, I also, um, I gained, part of my story is I gained a hundred pounds in high school. So I can tell you humiliation doesn't work, right? Humiliation doesn't work. And in the chapter more about alcoholism on page 30, it says, we alcoholics are men and women who have lost the ability to control our drinking. We know that no real alcoholic ever recovers control. All of us felt at times that we were regaining control, but such intervals, usually brief, were inevitably followed by still less control, which led in time to pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. We are convinced to a man that alcoholics of our type are in the grip of a progressive illness. Over any considerable period, we get worse, never better. So let's add on to our list now, considerable periods, time. Time is not a management strategy here. I have had some considerable periods of time without the food. Um, in my early 20s, I first discovered OA and I got a food plan and I worshiped the food plan, by the way. Abstinence was God to me. Abstinence was all powerful God and my religion was a food plan. I worshiped it. Um, you know, and I was young and I was able to leave the food alone for a while and I lost weight and all was well. And then I got all the things I wanted from losing weight. And like that man, I thought after a period of time, I would be okay. Um, 
but on my honeymoon, I picked up a frozen tropical drink um, and it didn't matter how much time it had passed. And it was actually much worse than ever. Um, I could not get back to that food plan no matter how much I tried, right? I came home from that honeymoon and I, that food plan, I had worshiped my abstinence and I had a religion of food plan and I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. Um, in the chapter more about alcoholism, a man of 30 was doing a great deal of spree drinking. He was very nervous in the morning. And after these bouts, he quieted himself with more liquor. He was ambitious to succeed in business, but saw he would get nowhere if he drank at all. Once he started, he has no control, whatever. He made up his mind that until he had been successful in business and had retired, he would not touch another drop. An exceptional man, he remained bone dry for 25 years and retired at the age of 55 after a successful and happy business career. And then he fell victim to a belief which practically every alcoholic has that his long period of sobriety and self-discipline had qualified him to drink as other men. And it says like out came his carpet slippers, the bottle. Um, he tried to regulate his drinking um, and every means of solving this problem that money could buy, right? He tried money and every attempt failed, right? And he went to pieces and was dead within four years. So here we've got some more things for our list. 15, self-discipline. 16, regulating. 17, force. And 18, money, right? Um, and, and okay, so I've got amazing discipline in other areas of my life. Work, I'm a pretty disciplined worker. Academics mostly, I've generally been able to get really good grades growing up. Um, I would study, I was disciplined in that nature. I can regulate, manage, control, adjust many things except my food intake or my food choices. No matter how much I've tried to use self-discipline, to regulate my eating or how much I attempted to force myself to stick to a diet, it didn't work. And certainly I'm gonna tell you the amount of money I spent is endless. I have spent so much money on this problem. And generally by the time you get to Overeaters Anonymous, you have to, right? I've bought everything. Um, and, um, you know, the, um, I, I shared that in my insanity, the more expensive it was, the crazier it sounded, the more I placed my faith in it and it didn't work, right? On page 36, we're gonna look at Jim and it says, suddenly the thought crossed his mind that if I were to put an ounce of whiskey in my milk, it couldn't hurt me on a full stomach. I ordered the whiskey and I poured it in the milk. He knew he wasn't being very smart, right? but he tried it anyway. And here it says he had much knowledge about himself as an alcoholic, yet all reasons for not drinking were easily pushed aside for the foolish idea that he could take whiskey if only he mixed it with milk. Whatever the precise definition of the word may be, 
We call this plain insanity. How can such a lack of proportion of the ability to think straight be called anything else? So here we're gonna add on to the list, 19, knowledge about yourself. It's not a good management strategy. 12, proportion, and 21, ability to think, right? So I know a lot about myself. You probably know a lot about yourselves too. Self-help books, therapy. I would dig in deep, you know, get to know me, right? And having knowledge, by the way, and applying that knowledge are two different things. Very different. I lack the power to apply the knowledge that I have. So knowledge can't work. Um, you know, and proportion. What about proportion? Meaning, am I able to put things into the right perspective? That's what it means to have proportion. Do I truly know what's important? You know, well, what could be more important than my health, right? What in the world could be more important than my getting healthy? And when I made decisions, like I would just decide what I could eat when I get to the party, rather than possibly offending the hostess by asking what she's serving or maybe like looking like like different and strange by taking care of my own food and bringing it myself. Um, that's showing lack of proportion. That means that I am more concerned with how someone thinks of me than my own life. That has no proportion, you know? And I think like, if you think that's extreme, those of you with children, if you have a child and your child had a deadly peanut allergy, I would imagine you'd have no problem asking the hostess if your child was going to go to a birthday party. I've seen it. I'm a teacher. Those parents call you all the time and say, hey, listen, my kid's allergic to peanuts. Can you please make sure that anything? Of course. And they're not worried what anybody thinks of them because they have proportion. They know what's important. And I can't apply that same loving, right? That same loving consideration to myself. That's a problem. Um, you know, um, page 39, the actual or potential alcoholic with hardly an exception will be unable to stop drinking on the basis of self-knowledge, right? We got to smash that point home. That's what it says. We've got to really keep that point because um, self-knowledge, you know, is, is looking at things to know more about yourself. And I've, I've heard people at meetings and in other places examine their birth order. They're going to find out like, what is it about when they were born in the family line that's contributing to this? You know, they're going to look at their abusive childhoods their issues with self-loathing as well as other difficulties. And, and true, those things are real and may be very problematic or, or not. Like as far as birth order, it just is, right? Um, and maybe it's interesting, but it's not at all related to having a psychic change. Like not at all, actually, none of it. Um, and even just identifying that I'm a compulsive eater, knowledge of that is like finding out you got strep throat, right? Or like Janet said, like finding out you got cancer and then saying, oh yeah, okay, great. Well, now that I know it, I'm fine, right? 
if I had strep throat and the doctor gives me a prescription and I take and I don't fill the prescription, I could know that I've got strep throat, my throat's not gonna get better, right? Or I could fill the prescription and just not take it according to the directions the doctor gave me. And here's the thing I would say is, yeah, that antibiotic didn't work for me. Well, you know, genius, <laughs> you didn't take it the full 10 days. You didn't take it every 12 hours. And I think that's the same thing in this program, right? We take the prescription, but we take it the way we wanna take it. And that doesn't work. That doesn't work. Okay, so I'm gonna, you know, drill down on the rest of this list on page 41 to 42. We're gonna talk about Fred. As soon as I regained my ability to think, I went carefully over that evening in Washington. So now we're gonna talk about, cause he, he drank, right? Not only had I been off guard, I had made no fight whatever against the first drink. This time I had not thought of the consequences at all. Right. And it says it go, he goes on to say that, um, you know, they prophesied that he had an alcoholic mind and the place would come when he would drink again. And that they had said, although I did raise a defense, it would one day give way before some trivial reason for having a drink. Right. So 22. Now we're up to number 22, staying on guard. Right. 23, consequences and 24, defense. So the, here's the problem with staying on guard. Um, I'm the guard. When I'm staying on guard, who's the guard? The one, the biggest danger, right? The one who's the biggest threat. And, um, you know, I say like putting me as the guard is like making the wolf in charge of the picnic basket, right? It's like, I can't stay on guard. Um, you know, I've, and so consequences, I've experienced consequences of compulsive eating, weight gain, high blood pressure, no clothes fitting, sleep apnea, digestive difficulties. And, and I just wanna share this really quick. My sleep apnea was so bad. I'm gonna share this particular consequence that on a regular basis, I would snore myself awake. Like I would be gasping for air, but also my snoring was so loud that my husband had to make the TV really loud to drown me out. And when I would snore myself awake because I wasn't breathing, I would wake up and scream at him in the middle of the night because I would blame him for having the TV on, telling him, you woke me up. How dare you woke me up? And this is like a lovely story. I told him I was gonna tell it. He said to me this morning, he said, Melissa, I, last night I woke up in the middle of the night and I thought, why isn't she in bed? Like he was wondering where I was. It was like 1230 in the morning and I go to bed way early. He's like, I thought, what is she doing? Why isn't she in bed? He said, and then I looked over and I realized, okay, you are in bed. I, you're just so small. I forget. He's like, and you're quiet. He's like, it's like sleeping next to, like you're so silent. You sleep like you're silent. And that's just, that's, you know, that's a gift of recovery. You just don't get. Um, uh, so yeah, so consequences didn't work, right? And defense, right? Defense means to resist attack. 
And for me, the food always won. Like I can't resist the attack. It's cunning, it's baffling, it's powerful. Um, you know, and, and so my defense is ineffective. And I would say, why is it ineffective? Is because it shows up, for me, it rarely was a cupcake. I rarely lost my abstinence or my diet on a cupcake. It came in through seemingly harmless ways. Like, I'm not gonna measure now. I just, I don't know, just don't feel like it. Or, or yeah, I don't have to tell my sponsor this. Or, you know, very seemingly, it, it, it's like, it's the wolf in sheep's clothing. It comes in in a sneaky way. And so how do you defend yourself against something that doesn't look harmful, that looks sweet and innocent, right? Um, so defense is ineffective. Okay, in the chapter, Working With Others, I'm gonna come down with the last two um, on page 101. In our belief, any scheme of combating alcoholism which proposes to shield the sick man from temptation is doomed to failure. If the alcoholic tries to shield himself, he may succeed for a time, but he usually winds up with a bigger explosion than ever, right? So 25 combats, that's just another word for fighting, and 26 shields, right? And anything, by the way, anything I'm fighting means that it's still controlling me. I can't fight this. Um, and I have no peace when I'm fighting. And as for shields, here's the thing with shields. I simply just remove the shield when I no longer want to be shielded from it. You know, uh, the thing that's being shielded like I would just remove the shield. In the past, I would tell my family, that's it. No more cookies in the house, no more cake in the house. I would hold them all hostage to my food plan. Everybody had to throw it out. I don't wanna see it. Don't put it anywhere around me, blah, 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 right? And then all of a sudden I would decide, yeah, I wanna eat that. And so what would I do? I would eat it on the outside of the house. <laughs> Like here I am, I made everybody throw everything out. I put the shield up, but now I'm coming around the back, right? I'm going to go around the back and eat it. And, you know, and what would happen is then um, all of a sudden I would just start buying those things again and God help them if they said a word to me about it. Like I just made them swear that they weren't ever gonna let me eat that again, but if I ate it, you better say nothing, right? So com so combats and shields don't work. And, you know, um, here's the thing. If you haven't tried all those management strategies, what I say is yet, yet. You haven't tried them yet. Um, you know, I would say like, my obligation is to raise the floor a little bit for you. Like that really is what I'm supposed to do, but not remove the individual's unique experience of desperation. Um, I can't do anything other than share what I've learned freely and live in a way that makes recovery look like the most beautiful gift that it really is. And, you know, and what I say is that today I know that I am not equipped to manage my disease and certainly not my life. And no, absolutely 
nothing human, no human power can fix me. And then I also know that God could and would and has, right? And so I continue to seek. And with that, I'm going to pass it over to Janet. Yes, we are. Okay, guys, we're going to take a five minute toilet break. Welcome back, everybody. I'm now going to hand over to Janet B for step two. Hi, guys. Well, hopefully, everyone is thoroughly depressed by step one. Um, I say that only half in jest because at the beginning of There Is a Solution, they say, um, We of Alcoholics Anonymous know thousands of men and women who were once just as hopeless as Bill, nearly all have recovered. So they make a correlation between feeling hopeless and recovering. But of course, because who would ever wanna do this work if they didn't feel hopeless, right? Who is ever gonna take chemo unless they feel they've got um, cancer that won't respond any other way? Um, so we are gonna do some work in the book and I'm gonna start with the very last paragraph on more about alcoholism, page 43. It says, once more, the alcoholic at certain times has no effective mental defense against the first drink, except in a few rare cases, neither he nor any other human being can provide such a defense. His defense must come from a higher power, capital H, capital P. So what they're telling us is like Melissa and I said, no mental defense, right? Broken bridge, all the tricks we try don't work. No mental defense against the first compulsive bite. Neither us nor any other human being can provide such a defense. That means the group can't do it, right? If I'm in a group and everyone in the group goes out and binges and they're my higher power, I'm in trouble. It says our defense must come from a higher power. Well, what if I don't believe in God? Or what if I believe in God, but that hasn't got me anywhere? What do I do? I turn the page and let's dig into We Agnostics on page 44. In the first paragraph, it tells us, it says, if when you honestly want to, you find you can't quit entirely, or if when drinking or eating, you have little control over the amount you take, you are probably an alcoholic or a compulsive eater. If that be the case, you may be suffering from an illness which only a spiritual experience will conquer. So the first thing they're doing is giving us a definition of an addict, right? If when you honestly want to, when you really try, you can't stop, or if once you start, once you take the first compulsive bite, you can't stop, you're probably a compulsive eater. And they say, okay, if you are, you have an illness, which only a spiritual experience will conquer. Well, how come? How come only a spiritual experience will conquer it? And what the heck is a spiritual experience? Well, um, this, this, pro, um, this illness is a spiritual illness. In chapter five, which we're not gonna get to today, it says, 
selfishness and self-centeredness, page 62. That we think is the root of this illness. So remember, we don't see the roots of a tree, they're underground, but we sure see the fruits. Resentments, fears, harms to others. But the roots are selfishness and self-centeredness. So we need to get those up. We basically need a root transplanted to get from the garden of self into the garden of God. Um, luckily, I think instead of watching Netflix, one of God's favorite hobbies is gardening. So this program and this chapter particularly is about a root transplant. So we have a spiritual experience. Well, what is a spiritual experience? So back on page 25, they tell us the great fact is just this and nothing less. They want us to settle for nothing less because nothing less will work. We've had deep and effective spiritual experiences which have revolutionized our whole attitude toward life, toward our fellows and towards God's universe. A revolution, right? Makes me think of like Les Mis, the French revolution, except here the good guys win, God wins. And what happens after this revolution? There's a change. There's a rewiring of our hearts so that the central fact of our lives is the absolute certainty that our creator has entered into our hearts and lives in a way which is indeed miraculous. That God starts work in us. And it continues on page 27, describing a spiritual experience. Huge emotional displacements and rearrangements, ideas, emotions, and attitudes, which were once the guiding forces are set aside and a new set of motives, God's motives, begins to dominate us. Isn't that pretty? But how do we get it? So if we get back to page 44, it says, okay, if you think you're, if you, it says to one who feels he is an atheist or an agnostic, such an experience seems impossible. And I would add to that, um, people like me who were practical agnostics. I always believed in God, but it didn't work. I was unable to apply the power of God. So it says, it seems impossible, um, but we have to try. So this chapter tells us, what do we do? So I think the first important thing it does is define what our problem is. And we talked about that the last hour on page, on page 45 it says lack of power that was our dilemma right whenever we want to solve a problem we always have to define what what the problem is um lack of power that was our dilemma we had to find a power by which we could live and it had to be a power greater than ourselves obviously but where and how are we to find this power? So we know our problem and we know the solution they're telling us is to find a power greater than ourselves. Okay, but how do we do it? And then this, well, that's exactly what this book is about. Its main object, so its numero uno purpose is to enable you to find a power greater than yourself, which will solve your problem. Okay, so let's play spiritual detective. Okay, my problem is 
lack of power. And my solution is to find this power. How am I gonna do it? Well, here are my first clues. It says, this is a power greater than myself, which will solve my problem. So that tells me three things about God. If this power is going to solve my problem, this power must be pretty smart because I certainly couldn't figure out how to do it. If this power is going to solve my problem, this power must be very strong because this illness is stronger than me, right? I'm like an army of one fighting an army of a thousand. So God must have at least a thousand and one units of power. So smart, strong, and most important, this power must care about me. Otherwise, why would he bother trying to solve my problem, even if he was smart enough and strong enough? So smart, strong, and cares about me, cares about me personally. Well, that's a power, that's a God that I could get interested in. But there's some problems. The problems are my own prejudices. And there's some on this page and some about 10 pages later. So we'll start with these. Um, when we think of the word prejudice, we think about feeling superior to people of different races or religions, but they're talking about a different kind of prejudice, a preconceived notion about God. And they say that could stand in the way of our spiritual experience. And on the bottom of page 45, it talks and top of 46, it talks about five different prejudices that we can have against God. And then there's another one mentioned in the next chapter. So the first one is the concept of God we were given as children doesn't work for us anymore. And it's often we were given the concept of a God who kept a ledger. And on one side of the page, he wrote down our good deeds. And on the other side, he wrote down our bad deeds. And if the bad outweighed the good, then when we died, he was gonna be up there waiting for us with a baseball bat. And he really wasn't gonna help us this much in this life either. Well, we gotta fire that guy. So how do we do it? Well, here's a, here's a practical tip. Um, I would close my eyes and imagine this false God dude with a baseball bat in his ledger book and his God mask on. And then I would picture the concept of a good loving God coming in and pulling the mask off that false God and exposing him for what he is, just a phantom and then kicking him out, okay? Because we're responsible for getting rid of our prejudices. So once we see we have them, we have to use our brains and our imaginations to get rid of it. Just because I think something or believe it doesn't mean it's true, right? In this chapter, they talk about how before Columbus, everyone thought the world was flat. Just because they believed it doesn't mean it was flat. So that's the first one. The second one is because um, we might think if I believe in God, it makes me weak. Well, again, we have to see, well, that's not true. If I use electricity, does that make me weak? Of course not. You know, there's lots of things in this world that I make use of. It doesn't make me weak. The third is that people who claim 
not to believe in God aren't very nice. Well, that's probably true. People who believe in God, there may be some who aren't very nice. You know, I'm an American. And if I meet a few Americans who aren't very nice, do I renounce my citizenship? No, I just say, okay, here's some Americans who aren't very nice. Um, the fourth, I can't, did I do, I can't believe in something I don't understand. I can't believe in something I don't understand. So back to electricity. I don't understand how electricity works, but I still use it. The fifth, and this is a very real one. If there is a God, he wouldn't run the universe so poorly. And this is one that um, Bill Wilson had a problem with. He talks about it on page 11 after Ebby comes to 12 step him. He says, okay, the wars which have been fought, the burnings, the chicanery made me sick. Judging from what I'd seen, he's talking about in the war, the power of God in human affairs was negligible. If there was a devil, he seemed the boss. Pretty harsh words, right? But don't we think that? If there was a God and he was good, how could he allow human trafficking? How could he allow this good person to suffer with cancer? My answer to that is the same as Ebby's to Bill. He basically said, you know, I don't know. All I know is that God is good. I don't have the answers to everything. And when I submitted my life to God, my life worked and God removed the obsession to drink. So I don't know why God breaks in and removes food obsession from compulsive eaters who work 12 steps and doesn't remove cancer from people. I don't know, but I don't need to know because you know I'm not God and I don't need to know. Um, and then the last thing is if I believe in God, I can't do what I want. Well, isn't that what Bill Wilson said too? Um, religion, what, let me get the exact words. Um, Page 11 again, he's talking about religion. For myself, I had adopted those parts which seemed convenient and not too difficult. The rest, I disregarded. I mean, it's wonderful for you know, someone to say, well, I believe in a spirit of the universe who just put laws into motion, like the law of gravity, right? If I drop something, it'll fall, right? There's gotta be a spirit who created that. But that's way different than a God who says, yeah, I need you to not steal. I need you to have compassion on the less fortunate. You know, an impersonal spirit of the universe who created um, electricity and gravity, it didn't help me. It, it couldn't help me. So it tells us we have to lay aside prejudice. And on page 46, here's a promise. It's in the middle of the first full paragraph. We found that as soon as we were able to lay aside prejudice, so we have to do that, and express even a willingness to believe in a power greater than ourselves, because as Herb Kay has said, willingness allows grace to enter. We commence to get results. 
and says, even though it was impossible for any of us to fully define or comprehend that power, which is God, not light bulb, not doorknob, not group, God. Now, God, as we understand him, no one has a right to say it's got to be the Jewish God, the Christian God, the Buddhist God, or any kind of religious God at all. But the big book says God. And in the next paragraph, and this is so cool, it says our own conception, however inadequate, was sufficient to make the approach and affect a contact. It's guys, not just a belief, a contact with the God who like flung the stars in the sky. He wants a contact and relationship with us. And it says, when do we get it? As soon as we admit he exists and take certain other steps, which is to continue on in the steps, what do we get? A new sense of power. That's my problem. I get power and direction as to what to do next. I believe at each step we get enough power to get us to the next step until we get through the first nine steps and then we've just got the power, the obsessions removed as long as we stay in fit spiritual condition. So we start getting power here. But is it enough to just believe in God or start saying, okay, maybe there's a God? Well, not really. Um, on the next page, on page 47, it says, we have to start making use of spiritual principles um, right away, even if we don't really have perfect belief. What are spiritual principles? Um, I had a friend who was in AA and he said, any alcoholic who comes around can stop lying and stop stealing. I may be powerless over my food obsession at first. I'm not powerless over not telling lies. And by the way, guys, if we are dishonest, whether to our sponsors or anyone else, we may as well take a big black magic marker and write, keep out God over our hearts because God will not, absolutely will not coexist with dishonesty. So no dishonesty, no cheating on taxes, no cheating on husbands, no cheating at business, um, no lies. We are people who have to be honest from the get-go, not I'll wait till my ninth step and be honest. We have to be honest from, from day one. Otherwise, we could do all the inventories we want, make all the phone calls, go to all the meetings we want. We will get nowhere. So we have to start making use of spiritual principles right away. We have to do what we know. Um, and again, we don't have to understand it, right? Um, I don't understand electricity, but I make use of it. When I first came around, or actually after seven years when I got serious and I took a sponsor who I knew was no BS and I made a decision that I would basically crawl on my hands and knees through glass if that's what it took. I was told um, I had to be honest. And as I talked about before, I just lied all, you know, a lot. Um, I just decided I was gonna be honest no matter what the consequence. There was one point I went for a job interview. I lied on the job interview. I called the interviewer back to say I was dishonest. Um, I mean, that's how seriously I took it. Um, and that's how seriously we all have to take it. So we do what we know. 
And then it tells us how to look at ourselves. On page 49, it tells us, instead of regarding ourselves as intelligent agents, spearheads of God's ever advancing creation, we agnostics and practical agnostics and atheists chose to believe our human intelligence was the last word. So I had to stop thinking that I knew everything. And I had to look at myself the way that God wanted me. What did God want me to be? He wanted me to be an intelligent agent for him. An agent for what? No, remember, we believe God's in the search and rescue business. Helping others. Helping others as I'm going through the steps as best I can. When I first started, I didn't know what to do. I made sandwiches for homeless people. I mean, that's what I could do. Um, in recovery, we help other people build their bridges to God. Agents, spearheads of God's ever advancing creation. We're here to try and do the will of God as best we can. That's it. And they beg us to lay aside prejudice, even against organized religion. So we may think, oh, this church or that mosque or that you know synagogue, like it makes no sense. We can't be cynical. Now I can say that isn't the way I believe God wants me to practice, but I can't go around um, dissecting other religions for the purpose of putting him down. I'm supposed to be looking bottom of page 49 at how many spiritually minded people of all races, colors, and creeds were demonstrating a degree of stability, happiness, and usefulness that we should have sought ourselves. So true religion, true spirituality leads to stability, happiness, and usefulness. And that's the fruit of working this program. And that's what we should be seeking. So on page 50, they tell us, um, it's funny, you think about like a couple alcoholics, you get, and could they ever agree on anything? You say, yeah, probably not. But they're telling us that the first hundred people who wrote this program did agree on two things. Um, on one proposition, however, these men and women are strikingly agreed. Every one of them has gained access to and believes in a power greater than himself. So belief in a power greater than himself and gained access to it, gained access to the power of God. And this power has in each case, so for 100% of the people who work this program, accomplishes the miraculous, miraculous. And it tells us what we need to do. The next paragraph, believe in a power greater than ourselves, faith. Take a certain attitude toward that power, surrender, and do certain simple things, the work. There's a revolutionary change in the way we live and think. Remember our book tells us once the spiritual malady is overcome, we straighten out mentally and physically. My thinking 
starts getting straightened out after my soul starts getting straightened out. So if we're not thinking clearly, maybe we need to stop telling lies. Maybe that's the first key to um, clearing up our thinking. I am going to flip now to page 52, where they talk about the Wright brothers. I always find this so interesting. They say, the bottom of 52, the Wright brothers' almost childish faith that they could build a machine which would fly was the mainspring of their accomplishment. Without that, nothing could have happened. Okay, so if you would have asked me, what is the mainspring of the Wright brothers' accomplishment, wouldn't we all say their aerodynamic knowledge or their mathematical ability or at the very least, their perseverance, but they say no, their almost childish faith. And without that, nothing could have happened. Well, how come? How come their faith was so instrumental? And the way, the best way for me to explain it is by an example. So let's assume that a Martian was to land on planet earth and watch me in the morning. So he might see me go into the grocery and fill in my car up with gas. And in each case, he would see me hand either a little green and white piece of paper to the clerk and get back a bag of groceries and then go to the gas station and see me give him a piece of plastic, which the guy stuck into a little machine and then came back and filled up my tank of gas in New Jersey they actually fill up your gas, or I guess petrol for you Brits for you, um, with a little plastic card. That would make no sense. You'd say you give them a piece of green and white paper or a plastic card and you get things. But that's how transactions take place on this planet. But in the spiritual world, I certainly can't hand God a 20 or my Amex card and get, get things, get a change in my heart, get them to rewire my soul. The currency in the spiritual world is faith. It's faith, it's belief. Now, how does that work practically, right? Did they just say, okay, I believe? Um, maybe, that's what happened to me um, I kind of believed that's what happened to me the night I took that really tough sponsor and said, I'm willing to do whatever it takes. I left the meeting and I said a prayer and I said, God, I've always had fixed ideas of what you were like and how to worship you. I'm willing to admit it's all wrong and to let you show me what you're like and how to worship you. And for me, it was like a hand reached into my soul and yanked out the obsession. Um, but what if someone doesn't believe in God? Remember, I was what I would call a practical agnostic. I believed in God, but I wasn't applying anything. I had to say that prayer. And then afterwards, I had to start doing what I knew, like no more lies, start doing self-sacrifice. But what if someone doesn't even know if there is a God? So I think the prayer could be different. I think it could go something like this. 
God, I don't know if you exist. And if you do exist, I don't know if you care about me. But if you're there, and if you care, I need some help. And I'm going to start taking the actions that I know about. The absolute worst thing that could happen is that there is no God and you're talking to dead air, right? Talking to dead air. Okay, no big deal. But what if there really is a God? What if there is? And what if that prayer is the spiritual catalyst that sets things in motion for the renovation job of your heart? It's kind of worth taking that chance. The Wright brothers took the chance. And that's why now we have um, United and Delta and British Airways um, because the Wright brothers took that chance. So I'm gonna flip over now to page 55. We had talked before on page 45 about some prejudices. And here, this may be one of my favorite paragraphs in the big book where they say, okay, yeah, we've seen spiritual release. Yeah, we've seen it work on other people, but it says we'd seen spiritual belief, but like to tell ourselves it wasn't true. People said God made these things possible and we only smiled. I think they really meant smirked. And then they say this, actually we were fooling ourselves for deep down in every man, woman, and child is the fundamental idea of God. It may be obscured by calamity, by pomp, by worship of other things, but in some form or other, it is there. That's kind of a mind-blowing line. Deep down in every man, woman, and child is the fundamental idea of God. So that means when God created me, he gave me two eyes, a nose, a mouth, two ears, and the fundamental idea of himself. He planted that in me just where, you know, he, inside me, he put like kidneys and a heart and lungs and the fundamental idea of himself. It's there, but it may be obscured, right? Bill talked about that, um, about scales of pride and prejudice falling from his eyes. It's like we have spiritual cataracts. And what obscures me from seeing God? Calamity, pomp, and worship of other things. Calamity, we talked about. It could be a general, the things that are wrong in the world, like human trafficking, war, COVID-19, or personal calamities. Why would God allow this to happen to this person? Why would God allow this to happen to me? By pomp, putting myself on the throne, right? Thinking I know what's best for me and you and everyone else on the planet, especially my children. And by worship of other things. And on page 54, they talk about what these other things might be. Other people, sentiment, money, um, worship, it could be a boyfriend, a husband, kids, status, the idea of being married, the idea of having children, 
all of this worship of other things. Any, if we wanna know what we're worshiping, it can be like this. I won't be happy unless dot, dot, dot. And that dot, dot, dot is what we're worshiping. So it tells me deep down is the idea of God. It's there. And it's my job, again, to get rid of the prejudices, to get rid of the spiritual cataracts. And they say, continue on later in this page, we can clear the ground a bit. Hopefully we're gonna sweep away prejudice so that you think honestly. Remember, we have to think, we have to push ourselves just because I have a preconceived notion from back in my childhood doesn't mean it's correct. Search diligently, take the time to work on this. And then they tell us the story of the minister's son. And his full story, which I'm gonna to touch on also, is on page 210, it starts. Oh, wait, 208, our Southern friend. So here's our minister's son, right? Page 56. And we can kind of see why he has a problem. Rebellious, so it's a, he's got some pride. He's had calamity in his life. These things embittered him, which means he had resentment. So he had pride, calamity, resentment, and he's in the hospital, in a mental hospital, and he's bitter. He says, if there is a God, he certainly hasn't done anything for me. But he sees a fellow uh, inmate there, for lack of a better word, and this inmate seems to be doing better. And, you know, so he goes and he asks them. He says, is it possible all the religious people I've known are wrong? So he goes to this man and he says, I'll do anything. And then the man says, then all your troubles are over. Okay, so that's step one, but step one alone does nothing. So he goes back to the man and I'm reading on page 215. I must ask you a question, I say to the fellow inmate. How does prayer fit into this thing? Well, the inmate answers the minister's son. You've probably tried praying like I have. When you've been in a jam, you've said, God, please do this or that. And if it turned out your way, that was the last of it. And if it didn't, you said, there isn't any God or he doesn't do anything for me. Is that right? Yes replies the minister's son. That isn't the way, says the inmate. This is good. The thing I do is to say, God, here I am and here are all my troubles. I've made a mess of things and can't do anything about it. You take me in all my troubles and do anything you want with me. Does that answer your question? See the difference in the prayer? It's not God help. It's God take all of me everything. Take my job, take my marriage, take my food, take my kids, take, you know, take how I raise my kids, take my future, take my health, everything, and do with it whatever you want. And then the minister's son says, he returns to bed. It doesn't make sense. And this is what he says. Suddenly, I feel a wave of utter hopelessness sweep over me. 
I am in the bottom of hell. And there, a tremendous hope is born. It might be true. I tumble out of bed onto my knees. I know not what I say, but slowly a great peace comes to me. I feel lifted up. I believe in God. I crawl back into bed and sleep like a child. And if we go back um, to page 57 in the story, We Agnostics, it says that after this, he stood in the presence of infinite power and love. God restored his sanity and the drink obsession was removed. And then they continue on 57 and they say, what is this but a miracle of healing? Yet its elements are simple. I always find that mind boggling. They're saying, okay, guys, here are the elements of a miracle. Like how to, uh, I don't know, um, make oatmeal. Here's the recipe, right? You take the oatmeal, you pour it into a dish, you add X amount of water, X amount of salt, stick it either on the stove or in the microwave for a certain amount of time, and then you get a dish of edible oatmeal. They're saying, okay, we're gonna give you the recipe for a miracle. Here, one, circumstances made him willing to believe. Circumstances, he took a first step and he was willing to go to any lengths, right? Page 58 tells us, if you've decided you want what we have, so we can make a decision to go to any lengths, not a feeling. If you've decided you want what we have and decided you're willing to go to any lengths to get it, then, and only then, are you ready to take certain steps? So one, circumstances made him willing to believe. Two, he humble and he was willing to believe. So that's step one, step two. Then he humbly offered himself to his maker. He offered all of himself. Step three, then he knew. And it says, even so has God restored us all, 100% of us to our right minds. He has come to all who have earnestly sought him. And that leads me to page 60, where again, it talks about seeking him and the results. And I wanna go over the A, Bs and Cs because I think um, for anyone who's struggling, this is a great way to help either ourselves or our sponsees if we're struggling with, you know, well, I believe in God, but this just kind of nails it and pinpoints it. So let's, let's do it. Page 60, um, our description of the alcoholic or the compulsive eater, the chapter to the agnostic and our personal adventures before and after make clear three pertinent ideas. A, that's usually easy, that we were compulsive eaters and could not manage our own lives. Um, so really we have to get that we're powerless, we have a broken bridge and that our lives are unmanageable. If we don't, we work on that until we get it. If we do, we move to B. Yes, I know I'm, I'm a compulsive eater and can't manage my own life. B, that probably no human power could have relieved my compulsive eating. You know, no Weight Watchers, no Overeaters Anonymous group without working the steps can do it. Um, 
no person, no gimmick, no nothing can do it. No, nothing human can do it. Great, we have our A and our B. Now C is where it gets tricky. And there's multiple parts to C. So I think it's helpful to see where the log jam is. And then I'll give you a few ideas on how to get past them. That God could and would if he were sought. So here's the first question on could. Okay, you believe you're a compulsive eater and can't manage your own life. That no human power can, yes. That God could. So do you believe that God could for other people? And if we're being honest, we have to say yes, because we've seen it. We've seen God restore people to sanity. Um, look at Melissa's pictures. Look at how she speaks now. Um, and there's like many, many other examples, God restoring people to sanity. So, okay, we say, yes, God could restore other people to sanity. Great, next question. Do you believe God could restore you personally to sanity if he wanted to? Now, he may not want to. We're not talking about if he wants to, but does he have the power to if he wanted to? Well, it's very hard to say he could for everyone else, but he can't for me. He can't. That just doesn't make sense. So people generally say, well, he could if he doesn't want to, but he's not going to. And then we say, like, okay, all we need now is just he could. But then the next question, and would if he were sought. So then it's like, well, I believe God could. I believe God can, but I don't believe he will. And there's generally a few reasons why people think God can, but he won't. And the first might be, um, I've done this really bad thing in the past. And then we can just point out, perfect. That's why there's a step nine, because all, all the founders of this program had done really bad things and God restored them to sanity. A criteria is not having never done a bad thing in our lives. And then the next thing might be um, this vague feeling of I'm not worthy. So what I would say to that is if you go to a psychologist, he or she may tell you all the reasons why you are worthy and deserving. And what I would say is, yeah, you're probably not worthy. Neither was I, none of us were. We're not worthy, but guess what? Worthiness is never a requirement. Willingness is. Imagine going to the doctor and saying, I have a broken leg, I need a cast. And the doctor saying to me, you ever steal in your life? You ever tell a lie? Are you a good person? Yeah, if you can't answer all those questions properly, I'm not gonna put a cast on you. We don't expect it in our other transactions. Worthiness isn't a requirement, willingness is. So if someone says, I don't feel worthy, I'm like, that's okay, you don't have to be worthy. Yeah, you're probably not, I certainly wasn't, but are you willing? And if they say yes, then okay, that's all that's required. And then if he were sought, well, sometimes people say, 
but I've been seeking him for, you know, for me, it was six or seven years and it didn't work. I believe God can. Okay. Maybe he'll do it. Even if I'm not worthy, but I've been seeking him. And for that, I would actually hold up my cell phone and say, you know what, if for years I try to take a picture and people tell me, yeah, press this button and it'll take a picture, but they're showing me the on and off switch, I'm following directions. But for seven years, I won't get one single picture because I'm not doing the right thing. And then lo and behold, seven years later, I get an iPhone sponsor and she hands me a manual and guides me through and very nicely says, no, Janet, it's not that button, it's this button. And then suddenly I can take all the pictures I want. It doesn't matter whether it's my first day in iPhone Picture Takers Anonymous or if I've been coming there for 20 years. As soon as I get the manual and start applying it correctly, I can take pictures. So I might ask someone, what do you think it takes to seek him? Write it down. And then when they write it, if they're correct, I mean, if they say robbing a bank to get money to pay off my creditors, I would say, yeah, no, that's not how we seek him. But if they write down things that are correct, like I must be honest, I must start considering the welfare of other people. I must, you know, be on a food plan, go to meetings, you know, follow the reasonable instructions of my sponsor. And if you have a sponsor who's done these steps, guess what? They're probably all reasonable. Um, yes, I'm willing to do it all. Great. Then you are willing to seek him. And by the way, one of the things I, um, I was going to say ask, but I'm going to say require of my sponsees is that they spend at least 30 minutes every day in a quiet time seeking God. Because if we're going to have a relationship, you can't have a relationship without time, without putting in the time. So at least 30 minutes seeking him, trying to have a relationship. So we believe that God could and would if he were sought. And then just hopping back and I'll close with this, the very end of We Agnostics, it ends with a promise. It says, when we drew near to him by practicing spiritual principles and by seeking him, by trying to get to know who he is, what he's like, what he likes, what he wants from me, he discloses himself to us. He comes down. You know, I said our bridges are broken to our memory and our only hope is building another bridge to God. And just like our memory came and protected us when it came to hot stoves and cats, God himself crosses over the bridge and protects us when we draw near to him. When we draw near to him, he discloses himself to us. And with that, I will pass and turn it back to Rita. Thanks so much, Janet. That was wonderful, thank you. And remember, you walk towards God, he will run to you, as they say. So next, I'm gonna hand it over again now to Melissa C. And she is going to talk about 
step three, is that correct? Okay, yeah. Melissa, take it away. Do we want to do five minutes? Right? No? Yes? I'm okay if you need. I'm okay. Do you need five, Jenna? I, I don't. You can take it. Okay. I can take it. I'm good. Yeah, you can take it. Okay. Awesome. So I moved to a different location and I've quieted the family down. So hopefully they'll. Um, They'll help me out here, guys. Okay, so one of the things I wanna talk about is um, I, I, the steps are just brilliant because if I think about like walking up a staircase or down a staircase, right? Up a staircase, really. If, you, the, if the step is done thoroughly, correctly, my foot is ready for the next step. In fact, it's dangling in the air longing really to be put down on the next step. And I think, yeah, so the purpose of that step one talk was to say, I gotta put my foot down on something. I need something. And then we find out, yes, that something is God, right? And now, okay, so now that I say, all right, there's this power greater than myself. It's gonna restore me to sanity. How do I get, how do I get access to this thing? How am I really gonna do it? So again, there I am, my foot's dangling and it's ready to be placed down, right? And that's step three. So, and I'm gonna sort of pick up right where Janet left on and how it works. I'm gonna repeat it again, right? Page 60. A, that we were alcoholic and could not manage our own lives. And basically I ask people, is this your truth? How have you been doing with the management of your life? And meaning, you know, um, for me, I would say, let's not talk about what you're managing so well, right? Not interested in that right now. If you can't manage how much food you're taking in, by the way, my dog has better ability to manage how much food my dog consumes. So clearly this is a human being that wasn't managing well, right? Wasn't keeping myself alive. B, that probably no human power could have relieved our alcoholism. So I would say, all right, well, based on all of the attempts that you've made to manage and control your eating, are you beyond human aid? Has any person or pay and way or any scheme or strategy been able to help relieve your compulsion? It's like, yes or no? Okay, no, right? Clearly no. Because um, I told you I spent thousands of dollars and tried every scheme and nothing worked. See that God could and would if he were sought. So are you willing to believe, right? After all that, right? Yes or no, right? And are you willing to seek? That's the real question, right? Are you, are you willing to put the time in to seek? And I like to think about willingness because we've already, I love how Janet explains that it's not um, whether you're worthy. That's irrelevant because actually what we're seeking is God's grace. Grace is like graciousness, an unmerited gift. It's not, it's not whether you earned it or not. So what's required is willingness. And willingness, I say, is because um, people are like, what, what do you mean by willing? What do you mean by willing? Well, willingness is made up of, I would say, like 100 parts of desperation. It's like load on lots and lots and lots of desperation and then a little like a little seed of hope just a little sprinkle of hope 
And, um, and what I say is if you're here, you've got it. You've got it, right? Because most of us don't show up unless we've suffered, right? And why would we all be coming together with our notebooks, writing things down, unless we believed that there was hope, there had to be some hope. Um, you know, if it was only desperation and no hope, then there'll be no, no point in coming together. And truly my purpose of when I show those pictures is I want to give you that little glimmer. I want you to look at it and say, if she could do it, I could do it. If it can happen for her, it can happen for me, right? So what I also say is you can't have contempt prior to investigation. And that comes in the appendix of the big book. And what does that mean? Be contempt prior to investigating. It means nothing should be beneath my consideration. I should not turn up my nose at anything suggested by someone who looks and sounds like they're living in a way that I'm longing to live in. Right? Why would, I, why would I look and say, that's ridiculous. Why should I do that? So you can't have that attitude, right? Okay, so if, you, if those things are in check, A, B, and C, then being convinced you're at step three, which is that we decided to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood them. And just what do we mean by that? And just what do we do? Right? So this part of the chapter in the big book is written to demonstrate, I think, how I'm making things in my life harder for myself and others because I'm trying to get things my way. And my intentions may be good. In fact, they're often truly the best intentions. Like I'm a good person. I really am. I've always been a good person. I want my kids to be successful, right? I want my career to be successful. I want my students to do well. I have a mom, she's gonna, she's 86. I want her to be healthy and to be cared for. I want my husband to be healthy, to do well in his job and be in good health, right? Most of the things I want are good and worthy. But my problem is that I believe that my perspective, how to keep all those things the way that I want them, I believe my perspective is a fact rather than just a perspective, right? And my other problem is that I exert my will so that all these good things, the things that I say are good, are gonna come to fruition. I act in ways that create chaos and conflict. Because guess what? All those people that I talked about they also have a perspective and they also believe that their perspective is a fact, right? Uh, most people who have different opinions throughout the world, I'm coming to find out, really, really believe that theirs is right. They really believe it and they're not setting out to mess with me. That is not their plan. They just want their way, just like me. And I find it's very helpful to read the bottom of page 60, starting with the first requirement. And I put it into the first person. So you're gonna hear me when I read this, I'm gonna try as much as possible to put it in the first person because it has a very different sound when you put it in the eye. So the first requirement for step three is that I be convinced that my life run on self-will can hardly be a success. 
on that basis, I'm almost always in collision with something or somebody, even though my motives are good. I try to live by self-propulsion, my own power, right? I'm like an actor who wants to run the whole show. I am forever trying to arrange the lights, the ballet, the scenery, and the rest of the players in my own way. If my arrangements would only stay put, if only people would do as I wished, the show would be great. Everybody, including myself, would be pleased. Life would be wonderful. In trying to make these arrangements, I may sometimes be quite virtuous. I may be kind, considerate, patient, generous, even modest and self-sacrificing. And I put next to it, manipulative. That's called manipulating. <laughs> On the other hand, I may be mean, egotistical, selfish, and dishonest. But as with most humans, I'm more likely to have varied traits. And what usually happens, the show doesn't come off very well, right? I begin to think life doesn't treat me right. I decide to exert my will more. I become in the next occasion still more demanding or more gracious, manipulative as the case may be. Still the play does not suit me. Admitting I may be somewhat at fault, I am sure that the other people are more to blame. I become angry indignant, self-pitying, what is my base of trouble? Am I not the victim of the delusion that I can wrest satisfaction and happiness out of this world if only I manage well? Is it not evident to all the rest of the players that these are the things I want? And do not my actions make each of them wish to retaliate, snatching all they can get out of the show? Am I not even my best moments a producer of confusion rather than harmony. And I just think it's such a great visual. And that's why I read it in the eye because I can envision myself on this stage. See if you can picture yourself on this stage too. And instead of reading my own damn lines, right? I've got lines to read, but instead of reading my lines, I keep running behind the curtain and I'm messing with the lights or I keep telling everyone else on the stage where to stand and how to say their lines and, and how to dress. Oh, I'm a, I'm a, I'm, I love doing that one. And how to stand and, and I'm burning up all this energy doing this. So what happens? I don't do a great job playing my own part. I, it's like I put my own script down. I'm not saying my own part very well. And everybody gets pissed off at me because what they see is you're not doing your part. What is wrong with you, right? And even if my idea is good, even if my vision of this show is awesome, now all those people don't wanna do it my way because I just pissed them all off. I've just annoyed them, I'm annoying. And then what do I do? I have this thing I've always done, I get nicer and nicer. And I think compulsive overeaters, we do that. We, we, we're like the masters of being sweet and nice. I mean, I'm just making a suggestion. It's just a suggestion, you know, or I get quiet and pouty, like a three-year-old. Like, you know, I say it's like, I'm taking my Barbies and going home, right? Like no, no one's playing my way. Um, 
And when that doesn't work, I get on my high horse, right? And I get self-righteous. And what I have is I, I have an ability to string words together. Like I've, I've got the gift of gab. And so what do I do when I want to arrange things is I get on my high horse. I use my ability to speak and I'm going to convince you. And if that doesn't work, then I get cruel, right? I try like everything. Um, so what is it? It goes on to say, I'm self-centered, egocentric as people like to call it nowadays. I'm like the retired businessman who lolls in the Florida sunshine in the winter, complaining of the sad state of the nation. The minister who sighs over the sins of the 20th century. Politicians and reformers who are sure all would be utopia if the rest of the world would only behave. So truthfully, I'll tell you, like here I am, I'm in my safe home, right? I've got enough to eat in the fridge. I've got a warm bed, right? I enjoy many freedoms in this world. And yet I can complain about politicians, unfairness in the workplace. Oh, I have a very keen eye for picking up on that's not fair, right? I can, I can zero in on the boss I don't like, my annoying colleagues, right? In those moments, I feel like my happiness is being hijacked by circumstances. And if the rest of the world would just behave, then life would be perfect for everyone, right? Okay, so it goes on to talk about selfishness, right? Self-centeredness, that that is the root of my troubles. So the roots, right? And Janet talked about that, but I say like the roots are the very things that keep me fixed in place. They're they like keep me supported and in charge of taking in and delivering nourishment, right? The roots take in stuff and it gives it out to the rest of this creature. So if my roots are all me and my needs and wishes, then I really am cut off from living in an other-centered existence. I don't even see anyone else, right? So my troubles, I think, are basically of my own making. They arise out of myself, and I'm an extreme example of self-will run riot, though I usually don't think so. Above everything, I, as a compulsive eater, as a compulsive food user, must be rid of this selfishness. I must, or it will kill me. And God makes that possible, right? I can't do it on my own. And there often seems no way of entirely getting rid of self without his aid. So again, I can know this, but I can't do it without his help. I had moral and philosophical convictions galore, but I could not live up to them even though I would have liked to. Neither could I reduce my self-centeredness much by wishing or trying on my own power. I have to have God's help. This is the how and why of it. Here we go. First of all, have to quit playing God. It didn't work. So what does it mean by playing God? What does that even mean? Is that different than just going about life like normal people? Like, what does that mean? So playing God, you know, if you look it up, what does it mean to have a huge effect 
on or a great power over someone else's life, right? Someone's life. If I can play God, it means that I think I have power over other people's lives. And, you know, whether it's their livelihood, their health, their happiness, if someone plays God, they behave as if they have the right to make the most basic, important, powerful decisions for other people. So if I have that first part of that definition, right, it sounds kind of normal, maybe a little power hungry behavior. Many people go through their life either playing God or attempting to, like in their own world, right? And we kind of call this self-reliance or self-will, and it actually, it can be kind of celebrated in other areas. It's encouraged, you know? It, it's like this notion of doing it my way. I'm gonna do it my way. And, um, you know, some of us get here kind of wearing that as a badge of honor. Oh, I do things my way. I got my way. And um, one of my favorite AA speakers, Sandy B, he talks about this and he points out that some of us walk around like this is an admirable quality. You know, he says, oh yeah, I might be a mess, but damn it, I did it my way, you know? And it's like, great, when you're dead, you want it on your tombstone, right? Dead from morbid obesity, did it her way. Um, you know, and, and uh, normal people, right, which we're not, live quite often by self-sufficiency. And I have to say that even for them, what we see are not really great results. We see people that don't really have fulfilling, wonderful lives. They might be powerhouses in, in business, right? They might be huge, famous, like wonderful successes, but they don't tend, many of them don't tend to have the most fulfilling, other-centered, wonderful lives. Now, they don't have my problem, so they don't need necessarily to have a hugely God-centered, other, you know, centered life, but I do. I do, right? So next, here it says, next, I will decide that hereafter in this drama of life, God is going to be my director. He's the principal. I'm his agent. He is the father. And I am his child. So what does this mean? I fire myself. I fire myself. Melissa is not the boss any longer. And, you know, for those of you who have ever owned dogs or dog lovers, um, I love, I'm a dog person, so I use dogs a lot for my analogy. And I've actually learned a lot about step three from dogs. Um, and I've had dogs all my life and the most difficult dogs, if you're a dog person, is the dog that doesn't know its position, right? It's the one that thinks it's in charge. And I've had this one dog growing up, um, he, he thought he was the alpha and he was this little tiny thing. Um, and, and he really thought he was in charge of the family and he was the head of the pack. He was the boss. And, you know, and in nature, the alpha's job is to do the thinking for the pack. That's, that's the job that's assigned for the alpha. It makes all the decisions for the pack. Its job is to keep the lower dogs safe. So 
The problem is when a domesticated dog is living with people, it can't be the alpha. It can't be in charge of keeping me safe because what it does when you have a dog that thinks it's the boss and see if you can relate to this as yourself, right? Um, it tries to manage the people it lives with, right? And those dogs are really frightened. They're aggressive. They bite. Well, they lash out. I've done that, right? Not with my teeth, but with my words, with my actions, right? Um, you know, they, they are not easy to get along with. They're not happy members of a family. They don't just hang out and cuddle with you on the couch. They're growling. Every noise at the door, they're on high alert, you know, um, because it's too big a responsibility for a dog to believe it's the boss over the people in its lives. They're, they're you know, the dog that I had went around biting and growling. And the sad thing is this dog, when I went away at one time, he actually almost chewed his tail off. He was so nervous right? He, he had like a little stub of a tail and then walked around with that, you know, the cone, the cone of shame that they put on the dog. Well, that's me. Like you can't get a perfect, like for me, that's a visual. You know, when I try to keep everyone safe, what do I do? I snap, I bite, I micromanage, I whine, I yelp, I get into fights and I argue. And while I didn't chew my tail off, you saw my pictures. I ate myself up to over 300 pounds, right? That's what it looks like when you're trying to manage and control. So step three means, okay, I'm recognizing I'm not the head of the pack and I'm just one of the pack and I don't want to be in charge anymore. I let it go, right? And as a result, I can let God be God and I can be Melissa. I can stop snapping, micromanaging, fighting, and arguing. So most good ideas are simple, it says. And this concept is the keystone of the new and triumphant arch through which I will pass to freedom, right? This is my key to freedom. When we sincerely took such a position, all sorts of remarkable things followed. We had a new employer. Being all powerful, he provided what we needed if we kept close to him and performed his work well established on such a footing, we became less interested in ourselves, our little plans and designs. And more and more, we became interested in seeing what we could contribute to life as we felt new power flow in, as we enjoyed peace of mind, as we discovered we could face life successfully, as we became conscious of his presence we began to lose our fear of today, tomorrow, or the hereafter. We were reborn. Ah, so I don't have to be scared anymore, right? I have someone, I have something, I've got a God who's handling all the big stuff. All I need to do is stay close to God and do what I think he'd have me do. Here's the beautiful truth, right? What I found out. God doesn't just make his will abundantly clear. He also gives me the strength, the wisdom, and the ability to live in agreement with his will, right? And that's really what the rest of the steps help me to find out. They clear away the stuff so that I get a closer line so that I can access 
what God wants me to do, how God wants me to show up. And when I don't know, I also have the ability to go, okay, I'll wait it out. I'll wait it out, resting quiet, right? In this absolute unshakable faith that it will be revealed to me if I need to find out something I need to do, right? So I wanna share some concrete examples not a dog example, my example, the living me example. My will, right, my master plan, my script is that my kids have easy, trouble-free paths. Um, by the way, they're successful. Put success there. How I determine success to be, right? That they've got good health, and excellent judgment. I want my children to have excellent judgment. Um, I believe I can make those things happen, right? I can keep them safe if they just do and say and dress the way I want them to, right? Everything's gonna be okay, right? All right, that's playing God. And life would have it that their road seems to be bumpier. I'm not getting that, right? Um, and oh, by the way, I'm not God, right? So I, I really don't know what the ultimate best plan is. And what I say is I'm someone who, who has to weigh her blueberries. Like what in the world do I know about the way another human being is supposed to live their lives when the most basic, thing, like how many blueberries to eat. I'm 52 years old and I have to write it down and put it on a scale, right? And report it to another grown-up. Why do I think that I should be in charge of anyone else's life, right? Um, so I can nag, I've done it. I can manipulate and I can complain or I can accept the present circumstances and I can ask God to show me the right way. Do I do it perfectly? No, I don't, right? Still struggling inside, what do I do? I talk to a trusted friend, a fellow in the program. I talk, I talk to Janet, right? We had this conversation, here's a real time example. And she shared with me this visual of turning my script over to God. How about take this script and, and give it to God, hand it to God. So now I have this meditation that I do and I'm adding it in. I have this visual now that I'm handing it right, I'm handing it in God's hands, right? Here's the script. I have this other one that she shared with me that I think works beautifully. I envision painting my kid's name on a rock on rocks, right? And I lay them at God's feet because I can't carry them anymore. It's too much for me. I do the same thing with my mom, right? I, I write her name on it. Now, some mornings I have to tell you, I'm so like filled up with, uh, that I'm not really laying them at God's feet. I'm insisting on holding them. They're too heavy, right? And then in my frustration, sometimes I even throw them at God, like, here, take them. I can't take it anymore. But ultimately, I've got a wonderful creator who accepts them however I place them at his feet. And they're in good hands. You know, what do I find out? 
God, if I trust and rely on God, I get what I need. I get what I need. What does God give me that I need? Well, clarity and the ability to make good, loving decisions. And I say, you know what? God also gave me sisters in this program. God gave me a sister in this program who's struggled with her kids too, who's had struggles in life too. So, you know, I also can look at my own bumpy past. Here's the other thing. I had a bumpy past. I didn't want to have this disease. I wanted to be able to eat and look and live like normal people. And I'm fairly certain on my parents' script, that was there too, because they tried everything to help me as well, right? My path is different. And what's happened for me is my path has turned out to be freaking awesome. My path is amazing. It's a great path. You know, what's happened is that when I live in agreement with God's will for me, I'm able to use my experience to help others. That's what happened, which in turn has given me a life full of meaning, purpose, fellowship, and direction, right? So I wasn't thin but I got all those wonderful gifts, right? I've never been able to eat everything I wanted in normal amounts, but I've got this instead, right? So now I'm at step three. I'm gonna say to my maker as I understand him, God, I offer myself to thee to build with me and to do with me as thou wilt. Relieve me of the bondage of self that I may better do thy will. Take away my difficulties that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help of thy power, thy love, and thy way of life. May I do thy will always. And it says here, I will think well before making, taking this step, making sure I'm ready, that I can at last abandon myself utterly to him. And it says we find it very desirable to take this spiritual step with an understanding person such as a wife, best friend, or spiritual advisor. I love taking this step with other compulsive overeaters. That's something that I do in my practice. Um, you know, it, it um, and we, you know, the wording of course is quite optional, so long as we can express this idea, voicing it without reservation. Though it was only a beginning, though if honestly and humbly made and effective, sometimes a very great one was felt at last. So what I, what I do with people that I work with and sponsors, um, sponsees is I have them um, read what I read in the first person to three other compulsive eaters, right? As a witness, right? And that they say the prayer with them and they ask the person to pray with them and for them that they can utterly abandon themselves to God. And then they do it with me as well. And I also, you know, um, encourage sponsees to look at the third step prayer. And if it doesn't sound exactly in their own particular language, remember, we're looking for a relationship with the creator that your creator can hear your language. So to put it in words that are, that are close to your heart, and there's many resources available of various third step prayers that um, I found are really wonderful and effective. You know, what I really wanna express about step three is that for me, it was the realization that my happiness was not going to come from getting my way. Because my way is not necessarily the way that God has in mind. 
my perspective is narrow and finite. I cannot see the whole view. I'm a human. It's like looking through the keyhole of a door, right? You look through the keyhole of the door and I make all sorts of decisions about what I'm seeing, right? And what needs to be done based on this very small little vision. But God knows what's behind the door, right? God sees the entire picture. And, you know, on my own, living outside his will for me, my best idea has me eating myself to death, right? Step three is a decision to seek God's will, to live in agreement with the plans that God has in store for me. So I think about it like this too. Here's another visual I like. There's a great big jigsaw puzzle, right? I don't have all the pieces. God, no, and I don't even know, you know those jigsaw puzzles that you look on the front cover and you know the way it's supposed to look so you can make decisions about where pieces are supposed to go? God doesn't give me the picture either. But I trust and rely on God. He hands me the pieces a few at a time. I put them where I feel they're meant to be. And if I trust God, the picture I have to believe is gonna turn out beautiful, right? And what I found out is sometimes the pieces that look awful, they look like, you know, like, what is this? This, this is like just a black solid piece or this is just a white solid piece or this is just a great, what is this? It turns out to be something amazing. You know, the shadow of a butterfly wing. I don't know what it is, but I have no other alternative. I've got to trust and rely on God. So it says, right, here's the instruction. We're now at step three. We say to our maker, God, I offer myself to thee. Build with me, do with me as thy wilt. Relieve me of the bondage of self that I may better do thy will. Take away my difficulties that victory over them may bear witness, right? To show others that I would help, right? Those I would help. I want you to, I, I want you to be able to see it so that I can help you, right? So that God can help you. Thy power, thy love, and thy way of life. May I do thy will always. And then, you know, and then we're told that we meditate on God's will for us. And we don't just do it once, we do it for the rest of our lives. That's a daily practice. You know, um, it says like, we think well before taking this step, making sure that we're ready, that we can at last abandon ourselves utterly to God. And I usually ask people, are you ready? Can you abandon yourself utterly to God? And if the answer is yes, then, we, then I have them say, okay, then let's say the prayer together and we've taken step three. And with that, I will pass. Thank you, Melissa, thanks so much. And I'm just gonna read out a little paragraph from the big book to back up what they've said today, the ladies. Page 381, winner takes all. It says, I have already told you about some of the miracles that have happened. However, there's more. I want to tell you how I feel inside. I am no longer spiritually bankrupt. It's as if I have a magic source in my life that has provided me with all I need. I just celebrated my 12th year of sobriety a couple of months ago when I first came to AA. I didn't know who I was. My sponsor said, great. If you don't know who you are, you can become whoever God wants you to be. 
Today, I'm doing things that I never dreamed possible. More importantly, it is the peace and serenity I feel inside that keeps me coming back. I have been through hard times in and out of sobriety, but before AA, it didn't matter how things, how good things got, I always had a feeling that something was wrong. In working the 12 steps, my life and my old way of thinking have changed. I have no control over some of the things that happen in my life, but with the help of God, I can now choose how I will respond. Today, I choose to be happy, and when I'm not, I have the tools of this program to put me back on track. So that's one of the stories in the big book. There's a lot of stories there that um, are related to what happened you know, the experience, strength and um, hope that Melissa and Janet have shared today. So I will now put it to the floor for questions. We have had a few questions actually come in. So I will ask the first one if it's okay. Um, and this is to both of you. It says, how can you tell if a slip or relapse is caused by a reaction to the physical allergy, a particular food, for example, or a failure to keep in spiritual condition? And what does enlarging your spiritual life look like for you on a day-to-day -day basis? You want me to talk about, you want me to talk about that? Uh, either one. We can each. Yeah, we can each talk about it. So um, once you're clear, right, on what your problem is with food, which is like, that's got to be done. That's like, we, we make that real clear in the beginning. If, if, if you're... Um, you're having a slip or, and I, I really, actually, I kind of hate, I don't really like that word slip. I think it minimizes what it is. I think it's, I think it sounds like, um, like, eh, it wasn't my fault. You know, of course it's not your fault. You're sick, you're powerless. Okay, let's next, right? Um, but a slip minimizes it. It makes it sound like you fell, right? You fell and the, and the cupcake landed in your mouth. And oftentimes that's not what happens. It's actions. Now I have had circumstances where I accidentally, yes, ate something, but I was, I was living in a protected state. And my, my feeling is my loving creator doesn't wait for the moment that I accidentally ingest something so that he can rip this recovery away and throw me back into the arms of the disease. That's not my, that has not been my experience. Does not mean that I take it lightly that it happened, right? So my, my question is more, my answer is more like, what do you do when that happens? Will you look closely to see what exactly was it? Were you lacking perspective? Right? Did you put yourself in a situation where you were not really recognizing the fact that what you have requires um, requires some sense of vigilance? Right? We don't just walk into places. Um, and if that's the case, then I confess it. Right? I tell my I don't keep secrets. I tell my sponsor right away. We discuss it. I find out precisely what it was. But I would say if you're if you're having issues with the food, it is spiritual. It is spiritual. It is a spiritual problem. And um, all right, Janet, you can answer. No, I, I would say the same thing. I mean, I once um, accidentally had a can of regular soda. I thought it was diet soda, whole can, and didn't realize it till the end. Honest mistake. I didn't binge um, because the whole premise of this program is that God protects us and what kind of God would like beat us up because we we made a mistake so I agree 100% with Melissa that there's something wrong with our spiritual 
condition. So we see what it is. We realize like, oh crap, like I said, I just had a can of regular soda. Okay, it was an honest mistake. I told someone and I went about my business. As far as enlarging spiritual life on a daily basis, I would say um, critical to that is a morning quiet time, which for me involves generally between 45 minutes plus of um, prayer, meditation, and spiritual reading. I've looked up in what the founders of AA did for spiritual reading, and I you know, modeled it on that often. Um, prayer, meditation during the day, seeking to not be in self-will, which is a full-time job, and spending a chunk of time helping others. That's wonderful. Thank you, ladies. Thanks so much. Okay, next person up for a question. And I hope I don't butcher the name. Chila, is that right? Chila B? Oh, yes. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's wonderful workshop. I, I just tell you honestly that I ate uh, during the, the workshop because I just can't stop eating. And I'm in a fellowship uh, from 2009 to 2010, almost uh, 11 years now. And just I'm powerless over food. And because I just, I feel that I can't feed myself. And that's a terrible feeling that I'm not able to feed myself. And I don't know what am I going to do because what I do for myself is just not working. And yeah, and, and I would like to go back on track that I can't, I can't hold my abstinent food because what I eat is not feels right. And if I am going to eat something else, because it's what I give myself is not good. And however, I meditate, I pray, I work on the steps, I do the best of my ability, but I still feel not feeling safe. And the question is, how can I get back on track? Because I'm, I feel like a robber and I eat anything in a cupboard, which is not my food. And I'm, I'm in a fellowship and I feel in my heart that I'm just do my best, but I'm still eating compulsively. Anything. Thanks for the question. Do you want to have Melissa? Sorry. Yeah. So, so my I would always ask. Like, so, do you have a sponsor? Sharing partner, because thankfully she's Hungarian. Okay. I'm going to say right there. You, we, we, we need somebody. We need yeah. a sponsor. So, no, because my sponsor. Who lives who, who who lives in uh, Arizona, Phoenix? She's she's really uh, old, and right now we cannot con connect connect. Then you need another sponsor. That's what I would say to you. I would say anything, whatever you've been doing before. Now it doesn't mean you end a relationship with somebody. You could still mm -hmm. be her friend. You could still, but I would say if it hasn't worked, it's not working, and you can't be in contact with her. And and you know you you yeah you might need like not you might you need a new you need a new way you need a new way. I can't, I can't, okay. I feel, but because I'm an anorexic too. And I always trying to, to take care of myself, to, to, to make my, prepare my food, but it's much easier when someone else just put in front of me. And it's, it will be a relief. So maybe you need, I mean, you sound like you need to go into a treatment facility. That's what, that's what you're describing. I'm not sure if that's, if that's the case. I'll tell you a little bit when I hear back from you. Mm -hmm. I hear like, no, 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 I can't. No, 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 I can't. No, I know. Like, 
and and really a big part of it is you've got to be if you're drowning right you feel like you're drowning and a rescue and a and a, a life jacket is thrown at you you don't argue right you don't argue <laughs> with the jacket you take it so i would say like yeah you need you need you need a hospitalization period may, may might not be in a treatment facility but you might need that you need very tight parameters and boundaries between you and the food and you need a sponsor you need you need to start the program over working the steps and janet do you want to do you want to jump in and are you living a life of rigorous honesty you're not dishonest about anything you're honest to your sharing partner about everything yeah okay um, I guess I would agree that the first requirement is being willing to go to any lengths. And if you and if you think that you can't prepare food, then I would say then hire someone to, you know, prepare your food and leave the meals on your doorstep every day. Like we have to do whatever it takes. And ag again, agree a hundred percent with Melissa. Get a sponsor who knows this book and can take you through it. Because I feel Sorry. that I can I can trust I on my own and my 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 mind is crazy. And uh, yeah. Okay, Sheila, thanks for the question. I'm going to move on to the next Thank person, you. Stacey. Stacey, do you want to ask your question? Hi, yeah. Um my question is this. Sometimes I hear about the level of desperation. Do you need a certain level of desperation to work the steps and to find a higher power? There are days I feel I do have that desperation and then something happens, I have no idea what it is. And the next day, the desperation is gone. And sometimes I listen to a vision for you and I hear many, many people talk about this desperation. So here's what I would say. It's about commitment. It doesn't matter how I feel. Um, on page 58, it says, if you've decided you want what we have and are willing to go to any length to get it, then you're ready to take certain steps. So for instance, let's say you're told to like what I tell my sponsees, 30 minutes quiet time with God in the morning, three phone calls a day, put all your food and a measuring cup and scale. It doesn't matter if a person feels desperate that morning or not, it's a commitment to do it. So you might wake up and say, I feel desperate, I'll do it. Or you may wake up and say, yeah, I don't feel desperate, but I'll do it anyway. Okay. So it's about commitment, not how we feel, you know, there's okay. an old saying, this program isn't for people who want it. This program isn't for people who need it. It's for people who do it. So it doesn't matter if you feel desperate. I, how do we even measure someone's desperation? There's no, right. you know, measuring right. tool for that. But we can tell willingness by their actions. If you tell me, yes, I made my, I spent my 30 minutes with God. Yes, I made my three phone calls. Yes, I weighed and measure all my food. Then I could say, great, you're showing willingness. That's what counts. Not desperation, willingness. Now, generally, we're not willing until we're desperate. 
but you don't have to worry yeah. about that. You can okay. just make a decision to okay. be willing. Okay. Okay. All right. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Great question, Stacey. Um, next up is Emma L. Do you want to ask a question, Emma? Don't forget to unmute, Bob. Yeah, okay, I've just unmuted. I think my question could have been answered in the last share. Um, I think I've lost my sense of desperation. Um, I came into the program 11, 12 years ago, and I was very desperate and got abstinent really quickly with a weighed and measured food plan. Um, my weight and measure food plan loosened and loosened and I just kind of, um, you know, at my three meals a day and with my two snacks in between. And um, so in the last maybe four or five years, my weight has gone up um, and I don't care. I've lost that sense of desperation and I do care. But I don't care. So I I do my breakfast fine. I weigh and measure my breakfast. I have my lunch, uh, a normal salad and whatever for lunch. Um, and then it comes to cooking dinner and making dinner. And I eat a piece of this and I snack on a piece of that. And I justify everything. I justify everything and I don't care. And then I have my meal and I stop eating. So it, like it's not terrible but it's not the way it used to be and it's not the way I want it to be I, I don't know I've lost that desperation what can I do <laughs> so well first of all desperation I'm going to jump in on this De desperation is not um it's not a long lasting sustainable um it's a management strategy it doesn't work we can't work I'm not desperate thank you god I'm not desperate today I'm not I Right, I don't feel that. Oh my God, I'm so desperate. I have to do this. I'm I'm relieved. I'm, mm. I'm I'm safe and protected. If we walked around for the rest of our lives in a desperate state, that would be horrendous. Yeah. I would say I've got so much better than that. Much more to offer. Desperation is like it's just a component of willingness. It's not even. That's not even step one. That's mm. not. That's not enough. Right. And it's not, it's not sustaining. So what I would say, it sounds like, you know, is um, it's this thing that, and it's a cruel part of the disease. You know, what would happen for me was I would, um, it wasn't like I didn't know where it was going to go. You know, like when Janet, when we talk about the memory fails to hold us in check, sometimes I remembered quite clearly where it was going to take me. Mm -hmm what I forgot was that I cared. I didn't even care. It was like, and that is how, how do you combat not caring about it? When you reach a point where you're like, who cares anyway? Mm -hmm. And really um, that truly is living outside of what I say is the way that my loving creator wants me to live. Because of course, God wants me to care about this gift of my life, right? And so um, to me, it sounds like you're not living in a safe and protected, you know, situation that this is a spiritual, you know, if you know what your food plan is and you know what you're supposed to do, it's not knowledge and it's not desperation. Desperation isn't enough either. I would say like, what, what unselfish acts are you doing? How, how have you, when you lost your weight, right? And got through, I mean, you, have you worked all 12 steps? 
Have you done? How's your working with other people? What's your 10, 11, and 12? You're not. I am. I am. <laughs> yeah, I'm working. Yeah. I'm working heavily with sponsees. Yeah, but you can't transmit what you don't have. No. That's actually, no. I would actually say then you're being just, you're really being dishonest because what is it that you're offering them? Because what we offer our sponsees is our experience. Yeah. Right? Is, is a pathway to safe and protected. Have you been honest with your sponsees? Have you told them 